Well, it's good to see folk here. I was a little worried in Surrey, like half the church went missing. And you know what it was. I realized I've got the book of Revelation entirely wrong. The rapture happened. Uh, I lost half the congregation. Evidently, it didn't happen so much here. Uh, I'm left with the wicked. <laughs> but I'm here too. <laughs> Actually, I was uh, obviously not in the right state of mind, so I don't have my sermon with me at all. I don't have any notes. I have nothing. I have my Bible, and that doesn't worry me one bit, but it may worry you. Uh, but it is an excuse of sorts, I'll admit that. But Emmanuel just said, go for it. And I said, this is on you, Emmanuel. Uh, yeah, it is. <laughs> just wing it. Yeah, well, don't worry. Thankfully, I prepare in the week for these types of events. But um, yeah, the, at the Surrey, we had a basketball tournament going on. There was a thing outside, a, a market. It was just mayhem, so... Um, thankfully, I even got out of the parking lot. But here we are at the end of the book of Revelation, which we've been going through for the fa- past several months, and then we get to take um, uh, a break in summer, which will just be a um, mini-series on topics, probably, and then we'll pick back up in the fall. So, Revelation chapter 22, we'll be looking at verse 6 to the end of the chapter. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant. With you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. 
Let us ask for God's blessing upon his word read and preached. Our Father, please bless us now with insight into your word, application of it to our souls. Let us not treat it casually, but let us treat it as a word that brings blessing to those who receive it by faith. For the glory of God. Amen. I'm sure there are different types of readers in our congregation. There are those who, when they start a book, feel like they have to finish the book. And you finish the book, and it's just built into your system that you must finish it. Uh, There's others I identify with more so where I like to dabble in books. I like to keep about 15 books by my bedside table so that I can at any time brag about a book I'm reading when a topic comes up. Oh yes, I'm reading a book on that. You know, I read a few pages here and there and you, it gets you a long way in conversations where you want to fake intellectualism. Uh, I suggest it to some of you. And I have no problem not finishing a book picking it up, putting it down, never seeing it again the rest of my life. Here we are at the end of the book of Revelation, and you have been uh, good listeners. You have got to the end of the book. But the Bible isn't the sort of book where you then say, okay, that's good. I've I've read that book, yes, on to a new book. It's the type of book where you finish in verse 21, and then you say, okay, where do we start up again? And it's actually quite important to understand that because this is what John is getting at towards the latter part of this chapter, the importance of God's words. And that will be the major theme, in a certain sense, of this sermon. Now, to get there, John opens up with words that are going to shape how we understand this book and should have. So you have the epilogue. This is the final Word. It is the ending, but the prologue in the book of Revelation actually has some of the same elements that are described here. So when he says these words are trustworthy and true, in verse 6, you can go right back to the very beginning of the book of Revelation and see that he'd been preparing us for this finale. And God's word does that very often. It starts out with what to expect. In fact, even Genesis 3.15 is basically what can you expect for the rest of the Bible? And you actually see how the story is going to unfold. That Satan will bruise the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah will crush the head of Satan. And the rest of the Bible is about two seeds warring against each other. And that is what the book of Revelation is about. Two seeds, the righteous and the unrighteous, warring against each other with victory promised to Christ and by extension his people. You get to Psalm 8, for example, and you read the first verse. Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then you read the next several verses and what do you find? There are explanations for why God's name is so majestic. So that by the time you get to the end of the psalm, when he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, you should actually feel that in a much more pregnant sense than you did at the beginning of the psalm. And you can go to John's gospel. The first 14 verses of John's gospel set you up for the rest of his gospel. The same is true in Revelation. As you go back, and I suggest you do, You read the beginning, you will see what is going to happen at the end. And the middle is the explanation of all of those themes. 
And one of those themes that we see here are that God's words are trustworthy and true. Now, we also see another theme in verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. There is an emphasis in verse 7. I think you see this also in verse 10 and verse 12, where the emphasis is upon Christ returning soon. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But there's also another emphasis. So you've got the words of God are trustworthy and true. Jesus is coming soon, but you also have the theme of blessedness. So in the book of Revelation, there are seven benedictions. Seven times you are blessed. And there's one right here in verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Do you want to have a blessed life? Keep the words of this book. Believe the words of this book. Understand the words of this book and you will be blessed. Do not understand this book. Do not keep this book. You will not be blessed. It's very basic. Now John says he heard and saw these things. And what you find out about John is that John is still, though he may be the best of men, a man at best. He is a fallen human being who still has the remnants of sin. And so he does something he had done in chapter 19, caught up in this great vision, caught up in the splendor of the truths he was hearing. He falls down and he worships an angel, but he'd already done that. So don't be surprised when Christians make the same mistake again in their life. When you think, okay, I told you, don't do this. They say, yes, I won't do this. And then weeks, months, days, minutes, seconds later, they do the same thing. John falls down and worships and he is soundly rebuked. You must not do that. Worship God. I'm merely a fellow servant. Worship God. Now, as he's told not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because all things have now been revealed, there's nothing hidden, Christ has come, he has lived, he's died, he's been raised from the dead, he's ascended on high, there's nothing for God to hide anymore. Daniel was told to seal things, John is told not to, because there's nothing left for God to say. In these final days, he has spoken to us in his son, and there's nothing left for God to tell us. It is all here revealed. And one of the things that's most interesting is verse 11, because it doesn't appear to be something we would ever say ourselves about human beings and how they should live. Notice, let the evildoer still do evil and let the filthy still be filthy. Would you not intuitively expect to read, let the evildoer stop doing evil and let the filthy stop being filthy? But here it suggests the opposite. And the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. That makes sense, but what about the former? Now, it's hard to really understand this because there are passages where those who are wicked are told to stop, repent, and turn to the Lord. But this is a sort of indicative of how people live. It's not so much an imperative. It's spoken like an imperative, but I think it's more an indicative of this is how people are going to live who are wicked. They're going to live according to their identity. Those who are holy will live in a holy manner. Those who are righteous will live in a righteous way. In other words, the Bible is very clear on this. You will only live in accordance with your identity. 
Identity is everything. Identity for Noah is everything now growing up. How is he going to live? Is he going to live as one who identifies as a child of God with God? And is he going to live in light of that? Are his parents going to treat him as one who belongs to God or one who belongs to the devil? Which one will it be? Because once you remove identity, you remove the ability then to live out that identity. Let the filthy live as a filthy person. Let the righteous live as a righteous person. Which one will it be? And so you identify as a child of God. You live as a child of God. You identify as a child of the devil. Maybe you won't existentially believe that about yourself, but if that is who you are, you will live like that. And Jesus tells the Pharisees this much. Your will is to do your father's desires. So let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous still do what is right. The holy still be holy. And behold, I am coming soon. Bringing my recompense. We don't use that word uh, very often. But it's basically bringing my reward with me to repay everyone for what he's done. Now look at the context of verse 12. What comes before verse 12? Verse 11. Who is verse 11 addressing? Just one category of people or two? Clearly two. The righteous and the unrighteous. And I believe that while we can affirm on the one hand that we become Christians through merely receiving Christ alone by faith alone, apart from works, That is not what this verse is addressing. It's not addressing how you become a Christian. It's addressing the fact that God rewards His children for the things they do by the power of His Spirit for His glory. That is, their good works. Now, I don't want you to be afraid of this doctrine. I want you to be excited about this doctrine. There's a book back there behind me. You can read on this topic. I want to see a mad rush at the end for the book. A fight, as it were, to learn how you can have rewards in heaven. And the bottom line is that Jesus crowns his own gifts that he gives to us. Those works that were prepared in advance for us to do in Ephesians chapter 2, you look at verses 8 to 10, those works were given to us by God. God actually rewards us for the works that he enables us to do. If that isn't gracious, I don't know what is. But equally, you still have to do them. You still have to think about what is of eternal value. What am I exercising my effort in this world to do that will have everlasting value? And what am I exercising my thoughts, actions, energies in this world that will simply fade away into nothingness? Your prayers for others may be the means that God uses to accomplish great things. Your good works done in private will be rewarded in public one day. You don't even need to show off as a Christian. You can simply do things because you know that you can be rewarded by God even for your imperfect works. He's bringing his reward. And if you don't believe this, read Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. The exact same language Jesus uses. Behold, I'm coming with 
the angels in the glory of the Father to repay to each man what he has done, whether good or bad. And he's going to repay everyone. But he also says, I'm coming soon in verse 12. And that may jar you a little. Why hasn't he yet come? And again, the answer is obvious. As we go back to verse 11 for the context of who he's going to reward and punish, we go forward to verse 13. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, this occurred to me as I was reading. It's, it's a little bit of a theological point. I hope you won't mind for a second. Have you ever heard that you only read of the attribute of holiness being mentioned three times in a row. It's the only attribute. You read R.C. Sproul's book on the holiness of God. It says it's the only attribute where you read holy, holy, holy. Now, this can't be public, friends. It's not. With all due respect to the rhetorical point that was being made, you actually have that right here. I am the Alpha and the Omega. This is speaking of God's eternity. The first and the last, God's eternity. The beginning and the end, God's eternity. I am eternal, eternal, eternal. So when Jesus says, behold, I'm coming soon, it could be 10,000 years from now. And guess what? That is his soon. It is not our soon. It is his soon. It is the eternal soon. So whether he comes tomorrow, whether he comes now, and you say, well, that wasn't soon, or he comes 3,000 years from now, It is soon in light of eternity. And he's coming to bless those, see verse 14, another benediction, who wash their robes, that they may have a right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Who are the people that Jesus is going to reward? They're actually the ones whose robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He cannot reward those who live in the flesh because those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh if indeed the Spirit of Christ dwells in you so that you can please God. But the only reason you can please God is because you've been given a new robe. You've been washed and God accepts you. In my bathroom, hanging on the wall is still one of my favorite gifts that my kids have given to me. And I've mentioned this before. Don't say, hey, Mark, I've heard that illustration before. Are you sure you're okay? I know I've said it before, so stop it. But there's new people here, and they want to hear this illustration. And it's a little chalkboard with little pebbles glued on around the chalkboard. Maybe a few have fallen off. And on the chalkboard, there's writing, Dad, you rock. And there's little rocks around. Now, I like this. And if I'm going to put this in an auction, and we're going to have Picasso in an auction, I'm under no illusions that my gift that I've been given is going to fetch anything other than a smirk of, oh, isn't that sweet? It's not perfect. The writing isn't perfect. The pebbles are worthless. But you know how happy it makes me every time I look at that little thing, Dad, you rock. And that's God with us. He looks at this imperfect pebbles glued onto a a board and He delights in them. He delights in 
our imperfect works because even our imperfect works are works that he has given us to do that he may delight in them, but he delights in them because of who we are, not so much of what we have done. I delight in that because it's from my child whom I love. That's why I delight in it. So those who've had their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, he delights in the person so that the works, he can delight in anything. A little prayer made in faith, he delights in it. A kind act done to somebody where you think, well, you know, I could have done more. He delights in it because he delights in you more than he delights in the works that you do. Now, as John continues to speak, he speaks of another category of people whom God does not delight in in verse 15. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Verse 15 really should have been meditated upon by many of us this week who probably, unless you were living under a rock, were confronted with the global response, the Canadian response, the American response to the Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade. And you struggle to make sense of everything. Because as a Christian, you've had your eyes opened, you see things, you understand that God knits us together in the womb and we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you understand that a person, whether in a belly or outside of a belly, is still someone made in the image of God. And then they say, well, people's rights have been taken from them. And you just think to yourself, do you understand what you're saying? That someone's right has been taken from them, and you didn't stop to consider for a moment that maybe rights have actually been given to those who are truly helpless? who through no fault of their own were placed in a womb. And listening to CBC, there's no analysis of why the ruling was made the way it was. You listen to our government, you listen to our leader, you listen to all these people, and all it is is just empty rhetoric. This is awful. This is terrible. But quite apart from that, and I choose my words very carefully, in the vast, vast, vast majority of cases, I'm not saying every single case, the vast. I've been in South Africa. I've given talks on abortion down there. I've spoken to people who talk about where there are rapes. I'm not unaware of this. But in the vast, vast majority of cases, if we simply, as a society, believed God's word and trusted that it is better for a man and a woman to have children in the institution of marriage, the problems that we are dealing with on a societal level would not be a problem because there would not be unwanted children. But since we've given up God's ways for humanity, since we have indulged ourselves in the flesh, we are reaping consequences on so many levels of unwanted children. And we have to come face to face with the fact that there are murderers and idolaters. There are people who love and practice falsehood and they are sexually immoral. And it is heartbreaking to see the way people think about reality, about this world. 
when God is not against children, God is not against sex, but God has given such great gifts that when they are abused, the greatness of the gift that is offered usually has the most severe consequences. So you think of the greatest things when they are abused, they usually have the most significant consequences. And whether it is abortion, whether it is sexual immorality, whether it is fornication, you are never going to be consequence free. Never. It is impossible. God does not allow it. He does not allow it because of how He's designed us and made us. You can't think you're going to get away with it. You won't. The sexually immoral will not get away with it. Not in this life or the life to come. Unless you repent and your robes are washed in the blood of the Lamb. And I know, I know there are people that I preach to who are sexually immoral. They are. And I hope that you will be convicted by these words. God does not, does not, and cannot bless people who are sexually immoral. It is a serious, serious sin. You get to the end of the Bible. You get to the end of the book of Revelation. It's the final words that John has to say to the church. And he says, outside are the sexually immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, as he concludes, there is hope because The angel testifies about these things. And the spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Now this is the glory of the gospel. You may find yourself actually in verse 15, but you don't need to stay in verse 15. You can come right into verse 17 and come to the one without money, without cost, and receive the gift of eternal life freely. All your sins forgiven. All of those awful things you've done and you will be washed as white as snow. And that's the problem with the Gospel is people are used to paying for things in life to get things that are worthwhile. I told my dad on the way to church I was going to bring this up. So don't feel bad for him. But you see, I grew up and uh, I liked to play soccer. And I knew if I wanted to get nice soccer boots, I had to take my mom to the store, not my dad. And everyone has parents where it differs. It could be the other way around. You ask Katie... Where is she going to get something nice out of mom or dad? It's me. I'm a sucker. I'll admit it. I'm my mother, a sucker. My dad would say, listen, you don't need those expensive flashy boots. We'll go and get Walmart specials. Walmart specials. I grew up with post-traumatic stress syndrome over my dad often saying, let's get a Walmart special. And anyone who goes into Walmart is lucky to come out alive without some virus of some sort. I mean, it's a dangerous place. I go in, I get my Turkish delight that they order from England. They're really cheap. I get my HP baked beans and I get out of there. 
the Walmart special. And you know what's amazing? My kids have no concept of what a Walmart special is. They don't even have that concept. They were never threatened with the Walmart special. But you know also there's expensive clothes, expensive shoes, expensive things, and usually you get what you pay for, usually. And we're used to things that are of value to us costing us, whether it's a home, whether it's a car, whether it's a holiday, whatever it may be, it's built into how we live. Anything of real value has to cost. And then we're told that the gospel, which is of inestimable value, which is of eternal value, which is something that will grant you the right to eternal joy and blessedness is actually free. It goes right against everything you have ever understood as a human being. But it is so costly that it has to be free. It is of so much value that nobody could ever pay for it. And that is why when you come to Christ, it is without money, without cost, because it is only a cost that Christ himself could pay so that it may be free. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. But then he comes back to a warning, and I think this warning is to preachers like myself. So maybe you felt a little bit under the gun. But there is an extension to this. So he says, everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, I warn that if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the book. Now, what's interesting is it seems as though this is being written to professing Christians. So there's a threat here, because why would he say take away his share in the tree of life? The assumption is this person is going to have a share in the tree of life. But if they were to persist in a course of action, they would have the tree of life blessing removed from them and plagues added to them. And what is the reason for that? It is taking away from God's word and adding to God's word. How do we do that? You add to God's word when you take advice from the world and you make it more significant in your daily living than the Word of God. When you look to the world for wisdom and you replace God's wisdom with worldly wisdom, you are adding. When you buy some of these ridiculous, stupid, inane, self-help books, you are adding to God's Word. Not all knowledge in the world that is non-Christian is bad knowledge. God's truth is God's truth, and it finds its way in many spheres. But there are some who actively look for methods that are directly contradictory to the wisdom of God. That is adding to His Word, but there is also taking away from His Word. And there are different ways we take away from God's Word. The modern evangelical, if we were to take a modern evangelical Bible and say, you know what, I'm going to remove the Pentateuch, I'm going to remove the minor prophets. I might even remove most of the major prophets and some of the writings. I'll leave a couple Psalms in there. We need Psalm 23. We need Psalm 32. Maybe even Psalm 51 if we're feeling particularly spiritual. And you can keep Romans in a gospel. And that was their Bible 
How many would really be affected by that? How many would be affected if most of their Bible was ripped out and it just remained there? How much would it change your life? Or what about completely? What about the dust that gathers on our Bibles at home? Take away from God's Word is neglecting God's Word. Think about what would you do when your screens get covered in dust? Or whatever else may find your way onto the screens. What's one of the worst things that can happen to a young person today? Do you know what? Their screen cracks. Isn't it? No, really. Their screen cracks. So imagine you had dust on your screen. Dust on your computer, dust on your television, and the dust just kept multiplying and multiplying. And you sat there and you couldn't really see what was going on, but you thought, isn't this wonderful? Who would do that? Who here would do that? Who here would allow their screens to be blotted out by dust so that they couldn't see anything and think, this is wonderful? And yet that's precisely what we do when we consistently neglect God's Word every day We are allowing dust onto God's Word by neglecting it and not making it primary in our own lives and not reading it and thinking that just because the Bible is on your phone that you are reading God's Word. You are not that disciplined. You need to open this up. You need to read it. You are taking away from God's Word when you don't read His Word. And you are removing a blessing from your life. You're removing direct encounters with the Lord Jesus Christ who promises by His Spirit to be with you as you engage Him in communion. And you are saying, I want something else. This is God's blessing to you. Not just the book of Revelation, all of His Word. And it needs to shape how you think about this world. It needs to shape how you think about this life. And Revelation does that for us. It tells us that we are in a real battle. That there is good, there is evil. That it will always be this way until Christ returns. And that the good are sometimes going to be called evil. And the evil are sometimes going to be called good. And that the good are going to suffer as though they had done evil. And the evil are going to be apparently blessed as though they had done good. And that's how it's going to be. But by faith you're going to believe that Jesus is upon His throne. That He is ruling and that He's going to come back. And He will judge the wicked. And He will judge the righteous. And He will judge the wicked unto eternal death. And He will judge the righteous unto eternal life. And that's all you need to really know about the book of Revelation. And all of the details are there to impress upon you that it is better to suffer by faith for the cause of the gospel and truth than it is to succeed by sight for the cause of wickedness. And which one will it be? Will it be that you will eat from the tree of life forever and ever? Or will it be that you will ask for even a drop of water to be placed upon your tongue because of the thirst that you have forever and ever? And the glory of the gospel is that it doesn't need to be the drop on the tongue. It can easily and freely and joyously be eternal life, eternal satisfaction, eternal joy forever and ever 
and ever. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank you for your word and for your promises, for all of the blessedness found in your word, but we're also mindful of the warnings and not to think they are not real warnings, for your words are trustworthy and true because Jesus is trustworthy and true. Bless us, O Lord, and let us forsake our sin in the power of the Spirit and live to God in the power of his glory and might. Amen.